This is Mia Hughes, formerly Mia Ashton, for Public, and my guest on today's podcast is Dr. Julia Mason. Dr. Mason is a pediatrician in Oregon and a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics. She's one of the few pediatricians to challenge the AAP on its endorsement of gender-affirming hormonal and surgical interventions for minors, and has campaigned tirelessly for the past four years to get her professional association to examine the evidence for this experimental protocol and reconsider its stance on pediatric gender medicine. During our conversation, we discuss the recent lawsuit filed against the AAP and several prominent gender doctors by a detransitioned young woman who accuses the defendants of civil conspiracy, fraud, and medical malpractice. So, welcome, Dr. Mason. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now, we have a lot to cover. It's a very long and complicated issue. But before we get to this huge lawsuit, could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell, tell us your background. Sure. Um, I am a general pediatrician. I, uh, I've This July, this coming July, I will have been a pediatrician for 30 years. So I went to med school in the late 80s. I trained as a pediatrician in the early 90s. And for all of my career, I never saw a transgender child until I think it was 2014 or 2015. And then I had a young woman come in to see me who um, was honestly passing as male. And um, they said, I've, you know, I've, I've been, I'm living as a boy. I've actually been a boy all my life. And I need, I need to go to the, the gender clinic. And I was like, right, right. There is, we have, we have a gender clinic and I can refer you there. So I did. And then they came back and they're like, oh my God, testosterone is a shot. I hate shots. I can't do this. And I said, no problem. Just bring the medicine here and we'll give it to you. We'll give you the shot. Um, we can't charge for it, but you know, we can just give you the shot. So the first, the first patient started on testosterone, loved the changes. I was seeing him, her, him <laughs> for ADHD although he wasn't very consistent about returning for med checks. So I didn't actually see him every three months for the next, you know, five years, but I did, I did see him intermittently. And although he got, he got a lot of physical changes and was initially happy, he seemed to, to, to lose that and to just sort of settle into not much, you know, never went to college, never learned a trade, was just kind of working one crappy minimum wage job after another. And on one day when he was really down, he was like, whenever I have a girlfriend, they leave me for a real boy. And that, that just really got to me. Um, and the next, the next person that came into my office asking for a referral to the gender clinic was 
a young woman in high school who came in with her mother and and really didn't look, I don't know, <laughs> you know, I was an amateur, right? I was like, I don't, okay. So I, I didn't really see it, but they were both smiling and nodding. And so I said, okay. And I did the referral. And I really thought that at the gender clinic, they'd get it all sorted out because that's what specialists do, right? I'm a general pediatrician. And if someone has stomach pain that I can't figure out, I send them to the gastroenterologist. And then the gastroenterologist will do some tests that I can't do. They might scope them. They might do an ultrasound. They might do some targeted blood tests that I hadn't thought of. And, and they should figure it out. So I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not sure about this one, but I'm sending them to the specialists. But then lo and behold, she was affirmed and started testosterone. She had a double mastectomy right after high school graduation in the summer between high school and college. And I saw her one more time um, after she'd started college. And I guess I'm still using female pronouns for her because she didn't really pass. <laughs> but she had that froggy voice, that tight, yeah. that tight voice. And she was making jokes about how like all her friends were trans and they all made jokes about how they all had the same voice, but she was going to college. That is my most successful, like my, in, in my personal life, she's my most successful trans patient because she did at least seem to go off to college. I don't know what happened next. She stopped, you know, she stopped coming back. Um, but I've had a few more and none of them have thrived. And especially when there was a 12 year old and at the first visit, they said, you know, puberty blockers are what we need to do. That's when I really started to look into it. And I'm like, what, what, what are y'all doing? And I had this Twitter account that I wasn't really using, but Twitter seems like a place to find information. And so then I was on Twitter looking for information and that is how Genia Abruzese found me. And, and she was like, are you in Portland? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm in Portland. And she said, we should get together. So we got together in person. This was in, this is, I think, in 2018. And, and that was sort of like, well, that wasn't the beginning of Segum, but that was like pre the beginning of of Segum. Uh, Genia was getting to know a lot of people um, around this topic. And in 2019, in October of 2019, I went to the National Conference and Exhibition of the American Academy of Pediatrics, which was in New Orleans that year. And I was trying to talk to people about pediatric gender transition, but I'm not very good at like one-on-one -on -one politicking. So I did a little bit of it, but I attended a, a presentation, like a workshop. People go to the AAP to have a social event, to meet a lot of other pediatricians, you know, and they have the big plenary sessions where there are literally thousands of pediatricians in the office. And then in the auditorium. And then they also have a bunch of CME, continuing medical education. And so you attend these talks and you get, you know, every, every doctor has to have X hours of CME. It, it depends on what state you're in. And so you can go to the AAP national meeting 
and probably fulfill your year's worth of CME just by that one trip. So it was a presentation and I think it was called something like Gender 101. And they put it in a double-sized room and that room was packed. And there were three gender doctors presenting and they were all thrilled to see that the room was full of pediatricians. And they were obviously assuming that the reason we were all there is because we wanted to be life-saving heroes like them. And they were in different parts of the country and they shared their stories about how they got into providing gender care to these uh, young people. And I remember one. they were really, they were saying, this is, you know, how did they say? They didn't say this is simple, but they were basically like, um, none of us really knows what we're doing. We're all making it up as we go along and you can do it too. <laughs> you know, like all of us can do this. You can, you can, you can write for uh, cross-sex hormones. It's, you know, just, just do what we do. And one of the women in, I think, Tennessee, she was in the Southeast. She had basically set herself up as an informal fellowship. So she had multiple young pediatricians who had just finished their pediatric residency, who went directly from finishing their pediatric residency to working in her clinic to learn how to become gender doctors. And as you know, the number of gender clinics has mushroomed. So probably all those people working with her are now in different places and doing the same thing. This is 2019, you said? This is 2019. Okay. Um, okay. Our story basically starts with the lawsuit in 2018. So we're... Oh, I skipped one, over that. Yeah. It's, well, so let's, let's go back to that important moment in 2018. First of all, before we get there, can you mm -hmm. just tell, tell me and the listeners what the AAP is? What is the AAP? Sure. The AAP is the American Academy of Pediatrics. And they represent something between 55,000 and 60,000 pediatricians, which sounds like an awful lot, but it's not all pediatricians in the United States. You don't have to be a fellow of the AAP to work as a pediatrician. Okay. And there's a goodly number of pediatricians who, who aren't members. But a lot of pediatricians are members of the American Academy of Pediatrics. What, what do you get for being a member? What's the benefit of being a member? What do you get? <laughs> you get a free subscription to the journal Pediatrics, which is considered to be a very, you know, like a top line journal. You get access to a lot of educational materials. You get a decreased rate if you go to the AAP conference. There are, th there's access to a lot of, uh, CME type things, you know, continuing medical education activities, and you're part of the group. Uh, the, the AAP does some lobbying. When I, um, prior to the gender issue, I was always in favor of whatever the AAP's position was, you know, so they were lobbying for CHIP, the Children's Hospital Insurance Plan, you know, that because especially before Obamacare, kids were really not getting covered by insurance and it was a it was a bad situation so they were advocating that kids needed insurance coverage they were advocating for vaccines they were advocating for gun control they they um 
they put out a statement that gay people should be able to marry and they should be able to adopt children, that gay couples can be good parents. And all of these things, I'm like, yeah, you know, like it was all, it was all great. And if you really want to go back, if you're thinking about this lawsuit that just came up where the AAP has been named as a defendant in a lawsuit by a detransitioner who says she was deceived and her parents were deceived, um, it goes back further than 2018. It goes back to 2016 right. when um, the AAP sort of brought together a committee um, with all the letters, you know, the LGBTQI, I'm not even sure how many letters they had, but, but you know, a lot. And young Jason Rafferty at that time, definitely still in training, was a member. Who is also and named as a defendant in this He is also lawsuit. named as a defendant in this lawsuit. Yes. And his mentor, Michelle Forcier, um, it's also named as a defendant in this lawsuit. She she was not on the panel. It's almost like she used Dr. Rafferty as her proxy. Um, anyway, they had the, they had this committee. They put out a document in relation with oh now I don't remember if it was Glad or HRC, but it was relationship with some big you know American gay rights now trans rights organizations. And that was very much under the radar. But then in 2018, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out an official statement. It wasn't guidelines, but it was a statement, like a policy statement that was about the best way to treat gender dysphoric children. And it was a unique document, unique from other AAP statements in that it was attributed to a single author, Jason Rafferty. And it also had this weird little caveat paragraph that stated, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's like, Jason I, I Rafferty is the sole author. Oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, read, read it. it. Yeah. Yes, it please. Says, Dr. Rafferty conceptualized the statement, drafted the initial manuscript, reviewed and revised the manuscript, approved the final manuscript as submitted and agrees to be accountable for all aspects of the work. Isn't that mad? That's, that's it's amazing. I mean, it shows you how young he was that he was like, yeah, 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 that's I, fine. I don't think this is going to get the AAP. I don't think this is a legal defense though. I don't think this just no. absolves them of any guilt, but we're getting. No, in fact, in fact, it sort of goes to um, a legal concept that I'm blanking on the name of. It's kind of like a, presence of mind or intent, it sort of gives you some insight into the organization's thoughts they that they're like, this is a little wrong. dodgy. Yeah. Yeah. They knew yeah. So somebody knew that this was dodgy. It's an admission And so they thought guilt, they'd put this surely. in. Yeah. It's kind of an admission of guilt. <laughs> and okay. so they put so that weird little caveat. Yes. yes. What, okay. What, what, what in 2018 in the Rafferty, the now infamous Rafferty paper, what claims did did they make and mm -hmm. and were they grounded in any sort of science whatsoever? Oh my goodness. So my general impression of the statement, which I have not read recently, was they say, okay, so we have these and they, they just they just go, you know, they go straight to the we have transgender children. There are children who are 
transgender. And if you are, uh, if you meet a transgender child, there are three things that you can do. One, you can do, you can try to make them not trans. That's conversion therapy and it's evil and wrong. <laughs> and then they gave a bunch of references which were not actually references about transgender children. They were references about abuse of adult male homosexuals. Yeah. And then they said, you could do watchful waiting, which was the standard of care at the time, um, where you say, okay, put stick a pin in that. <laughs> See how you feel when puberty comes. And... But that's also evil and wrong in this AAP statement. Or number three, you could affirm them, and that's the only right response. And to affirm a transgender child, you do a social transition followed by puberty blockers at the onset of puberty, followed by cross-sex hormones and surgeries. And yeah, I honestly did not see the statement before I saw Dr. James Cantor's um, takedown of the statement. Like I came across Dr. Cantor's paper before I even realized there was an AAP statement right. on the care of gender dysphoric kids. Cause they didn't, they didn't do like a huge unveiling you know, or ceremony. Unveiling or, yeah. yeah. And I wasn't, I, you know, I was a busy pediatrician. I wasn't really following things in 2018. I was just beginning, you know, to be concerned in 2018. And I certainly didn't go, to the American Academy of Pediatrics website looking for guidance. Right. Um, so James Cantor, Dr. Cantor's statement is really, his fact-checking article is really important. And I was heartened to see that it's quoted all pretty, pretty much all the way through it is the legal complaint. All, mm -hmm. um, so what can you, let's talk about that because it's absolutely scathing. And I was, I actually saw the, he gave a sort of live performance of it in the, hearing of the British Columbian nurse, Amy Hamm, who's basically oh, on wow. trial for believing in biological sex. They called Cantor as a witness just the other day. And you can see when he speaks about it, mm -hmm. he's absolutely livid. Five years later, he's still absolutely livid about the policy, the 2018 policy that the AAP put out. But mm -hmm. he basically in 2019 he basically fact-checked Rafferty's paper to death. He basically mm -hmm. just tore it apart point by point, showing uh, his, his um, conclusion is, is blistering. He says that the AAP statement was a systematic exclusion and misrepresentation of entire literatures, not just a misquote here and there or a misunderstanding over there, but like they misrepresented an entire literature, which is the literature that he knows he's an right. expert in. And then he said, not only did the AAP fail to provide compelling evidence, it failed to provide the evidence at all. And indeed the AAP's recommendations are despite the existing evidence. So he said, testifying the other day that 11 out of 11 studies unanimously show that children, almost all children just grow out of their gender dysphoria and they reconcile with their birth sex if left alone. And yes. most of them grow up to be gay. That's yes. the, that was the existing literature that the AAP just tossed out the window and allowed a, a group of 
trans activist mm -hmm. clinicians to draw up a trans activist ideological statement. Would you say that's an accurate summation? I yeah, I mean, I think that's an ac accurate summation. I would I would call them trans rights activists because uh, neither Jason or neither Jason Rafferty or Michelle Forcier are trans. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on how you you know define trans activists, but yeah, and that's that's exactly what happened. I think most people they read a paper, they read a sentence, they see the little superseding numbers. And they go, oh, this is well-referenced. Look, they've got three references for this statement. But James Kanner is reading the statement and going, what? So then he goes to the list of, um, you know, he goes to the bibliography and he sees what 17, 18, and 19 really are. And he's like, wait a second. I know those papers. Those papers have nothing to do with children. And so because he knew, because this was his field, um, he could just tell from the beginning that this that this statement was nonsense, and he first published his his fact checking like on his blog, like on his own website, and he really expected that he was going to get some feedback and you know engage in some kind of dialogue with the AP, but they just they just you know completely ignored him, and so he he had it published. So, do we know that they saw it? Is mm. there, I mean, yeah, I don't have, know. Do we no, know we don't know if they, no, that's a thing that we might discover in this lawsuit. I mean, that's one of the best things about lawsuits is there's something called discovery. And then people who are named have to give up, you know, things like all of their emails and oh, uh, right. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So discovery is a, is a beautiful thing. This is the first time the AAP has been named as a defendant and it does put them, you know, in a, in a difficult position. I have been saying for years that, you know, like in general, I like the AAP. I think that they have been a force for good. And I am, you know, I'm here to try to get them to be more reasonable because this is, this is potentially an existential risk to them. You know, if they if they keep being named in detransitioner lawsuits and the juries find against them, it's going to get really expensive. But that's apparently how things happen in the United States. Oh, I think it's a bit late for that now, isn't it? I think they yeah. are going to be named. This is surely the first of many. I think it's a brilliant move on the part of the the law firm. They're they're set up just for detransition lawsuits, which tells you what era we're entering into now. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, let's go to let's go to the lawsuit first and then and then we'll go to your you're, you're something of a, a hero in my mind because you're one of the few who's just you saw that something wasn't quite right and instead of just looking the other way you you actually tried to do something about it. Um, right. But let's Right. That that takes us that takes us back to that to that 2019 yes. um, conference because I'm at this I'm at this uh, seminar about gender medicine and they're saying you know you could do it too you know there is no formal training for this there's no fellowship for this and so you can just take it up and do it and you should I mean one of them told this touching story about how they're in the room with the trans young man and his mother, 
and they're talking about which of several uh, awesome colleges that he's been accepted to that he should go to. And then the mother burst into tears and the gender doctor's like, oh, mother, why are you crying? And the mother said, I was just thinking that if we hadn't met you, none of this would be happening. In fact, he probably wouldn't be here. So it was sort of that they were presenting that like it's transition or death. That was definitely a big part of of the presentation to us is we have these young people, they're born in the wrong body, and you have to transition them medically or they will kill themselves. And then if you do transition them, then they thrive. And it's amazing and awesome and wonderful. And I love my job because all I have are people that I save from death and then people that are happy that I saved them and I watch them thrive. And at the end of any of these AAP things, they have microphones and you can ask questions. And I was able to ask a question and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it contained some of my skepticism And I happened to be the last question, like after the time had actually expired, Um, they did answer it. But then as soon as they answered it, they're like, we have to go. And I got mobbed by pediatricians who were in the room who had heard me ask that question. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad you asked something. I am also concerned. This doesn't make any sense to me. And I got the impression that the reason that room was full of pediatricians is because there were a lot of pediatricians like me who were thinking, this is odd. This doesn't go with what I know about adolescent development. This doesn't go with what I know about anything. Yeah, about being human. And so they were there out of curiosity and trying to figure out more. They're like, maybe I'll go to this presentation and they will explain it to me. But that's not really what happened. Um, and at the same conference, they have regional meetings where you have a, a get together with the people from your region. And my region consists of Oregon, Washington, Hawaii, Alaska, Idaho. And, you know, for example, I think there's multiple regions in the state of California because there's so many people there. But then my state and these other neighboring states, we're smaller, so we're all gathered into one region. So I went to that regional meeting, which was like at 6.30 in the morning. And um, it was sort of, it was very much more like a, like a town hall. And there was a dais at the front with our leadership and everybody's sitting and they're saying, this is the program we did in Hawaii to get kids to exercise. And this is the program we did in Alaska to encourage vaccination. And, you know, people were just sort of presenting what they'd done, but eventually they got to where they were open to questions. And so I stood up and I said that I'm seeing more and more young people come to me, you know, with a transgender identification often it seems to be a new phenomenon for them. And if I send them to the gender clinic, every single one of them gets the same treatment. And I'm getting concerned about this. I fear that we're misdiagnosing at least some of these young people. 
And it was amazing because I'm standing there, I'm asking my question, and I'm getting these glares. Like if people had lasers in their eyes, I'd be dead. You know, there was one guy that was glaring at me so hard. I had to just turn and look at him and give him some solid eye contact. Like, yes, <laughs> I see you glaring at me. I am not going to stop talking. I'm saying my piece. So I said my piece. And then the guy up front was like, oh, if you have a concern about what the AP is doing, what you need to do is submit a resolution. That's how AAP members can try to influence what the larger organization does. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. And I sat down and then, you know, things happened and the meeting ended. And then I went up to the dais and I said, okay, submitting a resolution. How do I do that? Where do I send it? You know, how do I learn about it? And as he was, he was totally friendly and he helped me. But as he was helping me, I got the distinct impression that this was sort of his go-to for annoying people. Like if people have a, have a beef and they're annoying, you just tell them to write a resolution and then they <laughs> bugger off because they don't have time to do that. But at this point, Segum existed, or at least the people who later became Segum, I already knew them. And so I knew that I would have help and that I could write something. And as it turned okay. out, the deadline was in like Segum a week. Is the oh, sorry, Segum, right. So Segum is the society. Medicine? Yeah, evidence-based gender medicine. Okay. I mean, I guess you could be SEBGM, but that's mm -hmm. harder to say. So we made evidence-based one hyphenated word. Okay. Um, I knew I had people that could help me. So I got all the information and then I came back from New Orleans and I contacted, you know, my friends, my, my colleagues. And I'm like, oh my God, the deadline's in a week. And that year I submitted two resolutions one that said that we should pause this recommendation and oh, I don't remember. And the other one, basically I, I was saying we need to get a better look at the evidence. We need to do a review of the evidence. And then the next year I didn't actually submit a resolution. A different pediatrician who I did not know at the time submitted a resolution. And then we had the COVID lockdown and so they did an interesting thing where they put the resolutions online so that everybody could read them. And they had a way that you could kind of give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and you could leave comments. And this was in no way a representative sample of AAP members, because as I mentioned, that's over 50,000 people. And this, these votes are in the hundreds and the comments are in the dozens, you know, but of the people who took the time to go to the website, read the resolutions, and then vote, um, this gender, you know, this like we need to slow down on pediatric gender transition resolution was in the top four or five in terms of number of votes given. And it was three to one positive, you know, 75 plus four and 25% against. And then of the comments, it was a, it got a lot of comments and they were also overwhelmingly positive. Okay. But I mean, that's but, good. But yeah. does that bother you? Because where are all those people? Where are all those? <laughs> where, where, why aren't they speaking people? up? Where have they been well, for the last few years? Well, why the thing is most anything? pediatricians in the United States are employees. Like, the old days where you would go to go back to your hometown and open a practice oh. and you're the pediatrician for the town, you know, those, those days are over. You know, it's just, it's too hard to be a solo practitioner. 
every single there are many 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 insurance companies in the United States you know if you if you operate in a town you need to be able you need to be ready to deal with at least 15 and probably more and every insurance company has a department of not paying and the department of not paying throws up as many barriers as possible to you actually getting paid so you have to join forces with other pediatricians and so it's it's barely feasible for a group practice to exist, but the majority of pediatricians work for large entities. And if you work for a large entity, you are at risk of severe consequences mm -hmm. if, you, if you speak up. And people know that. You know, it's interesting because I moved from Wisconsin to Portland, Oregon in 2013, so 10 years ago, and I interviewed with Kaiser. And at the time, Kaiser looked really good. Like when I, when I had been, um, when I just finished my residency and so I didn't have health insurance through that job and I needed to buy insurance for myself because this is pre-Obamacare, I bought Kaiser insurance because I thought it was a good, it's a good plan. I did some uh, rotations in Kaiser, you know, and I, I was, I thought, yeah, that's a good, you know, it's kind of like a miniature, like a miniature national health system. The Kaiser doctors are on salary. They are not paid per widget, you know, and they have a, they have an actual, what's that called? A pension. If you're a Kaiser doctor and you work for them for a certain number of years and you retire, there's a pension. So like Kaiser looked good, but, um, I did not get hired by Kaiser and I was sad about that, but I, I got, I, I worked, I got hired by a small independently owned group practice. And so I am uniquely able to speak my mind because my boss um, is a libertarian. Mm -hmm. He's not a Democrat, you know, so he's unusual. He's unusual in terms of pediatricians. Most pediatricians are quite liberal. Um, it's kind of the liberal mindset that inspires you to go into pediatrics because you certainly don't go into it for the money. Um, my boss actually, he went into pediatrics, I think because his older brother was a pediatrician because they're nine years apart. And so he went into pediatrics and, uh, and then he ended up sort of inheriting the clinic from his older brother who had started it. So he's not your typical pediatrician. He's a libertarian. He loves hunting. He loves his guns. Um, and so he knows what I'm doing and he's fine with it. But this is a highly unusual situation. We've reached the end of this episode of the free version of Public's podcast. To access the full version, become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com.